Hi, and welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. Where do you start? Because where do you start? Um, number one, you've got to be honest and you've got to say, that's the biggest event in terms of fan engagement, spectacle, numbers, everything. That's the biggest event we've had since the Mayweather era stopped. Like, this is the first time you can say boxing's moved past the Mayweather era. That Tyson Fury was able to evoke those memories of Ricky Hatton taking over Vegas, bringing what, let's just say he brought seven or 8,000 people with him. You know, and that's being, that's being modest. You know, if you include the Brits who are already out there, then it's probably a, it's, it's a hefty number. You saw the videos from the weigh-in, and from that point you knew this was going to be special. You know, it was the kind of event that if you're Eddie Hearn, you hold your hands up and you say, they played this perfectly. They didn't rush immediately into the rematch, and a lot of people were criticizing that, and I heard it, and I heard it, but I understood why. By the time these two fought for a second time, it meant more. And they'd broadened their appeal out to the point where we all cared. Whether you're a boxing fan or not, you knew this was a big deal. Because these were two guys that hadn't been beaten, and you had the ultimate puncher at heavyweight against the ultimate boxer at heavyweight. This was a huge event and, you know, talking to people who were on the ground in Vegas, whether they were media, whether they were ex-fighters, whatever, having those conversations and people just saying, the Brits are everywhere. And I thought, this is what British boxing needed. It needed fury. I don't think you get the same spiritual connection that you do with Joshua. And that's not to say that I dislike Joshua, though, because actually I don't. But I think Anthony Joshua occupies this lane where he doesn't do things that the average man would do. Like Tyson Fury, look, go back to the dark days of Fury when he was out buying shots for the, the England fans in Marseille. That buys you goodwill with the fans. Joshua doesn't do things like that. Two different ways of living lead to two different outcomes. And maybe, and maybe that's why Joshua hasn't done Vegas yet. But how you rebuild Joshua's image in order to do Vegas, I don't know, but we're not here to discuss that. Just want to reiterate the point that this was a massive event and it vindicates Aram and it vindicates Al Heyman in turning down that DAZN money because they made more money together than they would have done with DAZN. And in that sense, fair play to Al Heyman for delivering for his fighter and fair play to Bob Aram for delivering for his fighter. But let's be honest, no one really came for, no one came for me to to bash Hearn or whatever. You, look, let's just talk about what happened last night and try and put, try and put context into what we saw because I'm, I'm still trying to process what I saw yesterday and it, and it falls down to two key questions. One, did Tyson Fury have confidence in Ben Davison in the first fight? And secondly, what, what were Team Wilder thinking? And I just want to just address those quickly because Fury weighed in at 256 for the first Wilder fight. And Ben Davidson in the builder broke it down why he did it, this, that, and the third. And I know there are fans who say, well, Fury did enough to win the fight. But you always had a feeling that's not how Fury wants to box. I think in the second coming of Fury, it's more about, you know, I don't have to be scared of anyone. If I want to take you out, I'll take you out. And I think he wants to do things more on his own terms. 
That was the first thing. So the weight was the issue. The tactics were the issue. And the rebound away from those two things would suggest that Fury wasn't a believer in that approach. Now, I'm not close enough to the details to know, but I, I've, I've been listening to Big John Fury for a while. And what Big John was saying was that corner was all wrong. He's always, Big John has always said Tyson needs to be about 19, about 19 stone. That's when he boxes at his best. And I trust the father's judgment in that sense, especially a father who's as steeped in the sport as John Fury is. And he was also saying the tactics were wrong. So all that criticism from the outside was important because it led, you know, it alluded to something not being right internally. And so when Tyson then appoints, you know, Sugar Hill Stewart, is that what we're going to call him now? Maybe. As his trainer, I think the aim was to get Ben involved with someone who understands boxing and to see how it's done because... If you look at where Tyson Fury is, he's 31 years old. Now, is he 32 this year? Probably is. And when you get to that point, you've been boxing your whole life. No trainer knows as much about the fight game as you do. Ben Davison does not know more about boxing than Tyson does. Ben Davison's good at analysing something. You give him a massive set of data. You give him 40 Deontay Wilder fights. He will find everything that Deontay does. And that gets you so far as a trainer. But what Tyson does is Tyson goes in. He's experienced enough that he figures it out in split seconds. He doesn't need a massive data sample. Based on what he sees, he, he already eliminates what can't be possible. He doesn't need to be that deep of an analyst. So Tyson had to build a team around him that wasn't necessarily about knowledge and tactics. It was about... What do you want to do, Tyson? That was really the question. Tyson Fury, if you fought Deontay Wilder, how would you fight Wilder considering you fought him already? And I think that's what the second fight was about from the Fury camp. It was, look, I wouldn't have fought the first fight that way on reflection. And with that considered, what I now want to do is fight it the way I always wanted to fight it which means I'm going to come in a little bit bigger. I want to be more of a combination puncher. It might not look elegant. It might look messy. But I'm going to bully this guy. I'm going to dominate him because that's what I want my legacy to be, the dominant heavyweight of my era. Now, I think what Tyson did is he just wanted to build a team around that vision. And I think it's a vision that Andy Lee bought into. I think it's a vision that Sugar Hill bought into. I don't necessarily think it's a vision Ben Davidson bought into. And so... That explains how you get that camp, right? So how much confidence was there in Ben Davis? And the answer is probably not that much because he doesn't seem to be missed by those inside of Team Fury. Now for Wilder. You've had from December 2nd, 2018 to maybe even like 10 days ago to work out how the hell you're going to beat Fury. You've had well over a year to come up with a few subtle changes. Changing your arsenal. And you're not a guy that came into boxing from a young age. You're not a guy that has a hundred different tools. You, you're not a guy that has 14 clubs in the golf bag. You, you, that, that's not Deontay Wilder. You've got three drivers, maybe a one iron, and maybe, who knows, <laughs> one of those big berthers as well. 
That's all you have. It's, it's, it's a power game. That, that's, that's what you have. Were you able to add a bit of finesse to that? The answer was no. So the question becomes why? Why did you feel there was no need to change? Did Deontay Wilder come into this fight going, all I need to do is hit him like I hit him in the 12th, but do it before the 12th and I win? And I'd be so disappointed if that's what he did. Because he already had the case study before him of Anthony Joshua having to make significant adjustments in a rematch to, to add new levels to his game, to add new wrinkles to his skill set. He already saw that live in the flesh, and yet he persisted with this notion. Now, is that his fault? Is that his team's fault? No idea. What we know is that that system's broken, and he surely can't have confidence in that system. But uh, that's, that's more of a high-level discussion. You know, the fight itself, definitely one for the ages. And, you know, I'm just re reliving some of my feelings through that fight. But just from the entrance, like, who comes out to Patsy Cline of all the songs? And that lets you know that Tyson's in control of all the variables that make up Tyson Fury. Because it's not a song that gets the crowd up. It's just a song that when you look back 10 years from now and you see him come out on the wheeled throne doing all of this and more importantly, just the calm, the, the way that he's got the crowd calm and the crowd are like, what is this guy doing? And he set a psychological tone then. It's almost like he was creating this contrast between what he was doing coming into the ring and what he'd go on to do in the ring. And I, and I like that. It's almost like you're playing on the, the tensions of your opponent because if you notice in the build-up, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, of him larking around or him being super relaxed. But if you watch him again, go back and watch those clips. Watch his eyes and watch his facial expressions. What He's still holding that intensity which says, I've got to fight today. And I'm fighting for my career, if not fighting for my life. And you contrast that with the Wilder entrance which you felt was trying to, a bit too hard. I enjoyed it, but it felt to me like it was trying a bit too hard to be too many things. And I found it fascinating. I don't know if people notice this, but as Wilder's coming towards the ring, it just looks like utter chaos and bedlam. Like It looks like they haven't rehearsed this, right? Because Wilder's there, you can barely see him, you know, apart from the red lights in his, in his outfit. You can barely see him. The security are kind of here. His entourage are milling around. There's no structure to it. And that almost became a metaphor for the whole night. Like You had Fury with this meticulously planned, super prepared, efficient, effective ring walk. And Wilders just seemed a bit like they just put it together that morning. You know, but let's not read too much into it. it was so, so from that perspective, it was. I also love the fact that Vegas and God Save the Queen, probably better than we do in this country. And we put the Americans to shame in terms of, you know, appreciation for an anthem. So a big tick in the box with British fans again. And it reminds the Americans that they need us to make these Vegas fights, you know, the events that they are, because we really appreciate what big time boxing is, because we don't get enough of it here, which is a discussion for another time. But we need more of it. But I really want to focus on the fight itself. 
And the reason I want to focus on the fight itself is the same theme emerged twice, actually. So if you look in the first fight, Deontay Wilder was able to use his left hook as a, as a means of shutting down Tyson's right-hand side. So Fury didn't want to go to his right-hand side because there'd be a left hook waiting. And so that meant Fury had two options. He either moved to his left or he moved backwards. And that meant Wilder had a home for the right hand, right? First fight, worked a treat for Wilder. And what it also did, what that left hook also did is it proved a great finishing punch. So when they started to exchange, as long as Wilder finished on the left hook, he was able to, to reset himself. And he was also able to get that last word in the exchanges. And that's what bought him some credit with the judges, I'd suspect. In this fight, he forgot all of that. And Tyson Fury took that up. So if you, if you watch, Fury used the left hook a lot to, to do that exact same thing, to keep, to keep Deontay Wilder right in line for the right hand. And that's why so much of it happened. Fury did all these clever things. So he'd throw like a kind of jab hook. He'd throw a jab to move the arm out the way. He'd do these, these little clever things that Wilder clearly hadn't prepared for. So, you know, what was Malik Scott putting him through? This is exactly what should have happened. You know, where was the scenario analysis? What happens if Fury decides to be the aggressor? What are you going to do? Don't even think they're prepared for that. They replicated the old Fury. They didn't dare play around with scenarios, which is a real shame because... Had they prepared based on a scenario-by-scenario basis, they might have been better prepared for this fight. But don't take anything from what Fury did. His left hand work, when, when people watch that fight back, what he was doing with his left hand, opening gaps, creating space for the right hand. Like Sometimes he was trying to hook you know, the, the protective arm away from Wilde so he could get the shot in. Sometimes he was just blasting through the guard. And it was that psychological pressure of not knowing where the attacks are going to come from and what they're going to look like. And Wilder just couldn't compute what he was seeing because what he was seeing was someone in Tyson Fury who has been boxing from a very young age. So he has little tricks, he has little shortcuts, he has little mnemonics, things that he can do without thinking that create opportunities because they've been worked on year after year, round after round, sparring session after sparring session. They've been worked on. And so once he, decide, once he established that left-hand dominance, the right hand was more likely to find a home. And, and he was getting full extension in that right hand, something I criticized in the previous podcast, that he tends to keep his arms quite bent when he punches, instead of just focusing on just flicking, connecting, scoring points. This time he's really driving through his shots. And when you weigh 273-plus pounds, that's a big deal. If the first fight was characterized by Wilder not being able to deal with the Fury feints, I think this one was characterized by Wilder not being able to deal with the, the Fury aggression. And Tyson flagged this before. He said, no, I'm going to take this guy out. And Deontay clearly didn't take him seriously. And if you see what, look, from, just from the first bell... Tyson refused to take a backward step. And when a 273-pound man refuses to take a backward step, it gets very, very hard for you. It, it's, you don't want to give up that much weight to anyone. And so Fury was able to be the bully. And because Wilder cannot fight inside, he can't fight up close, he struggles with that. So Wilder always has to go back. 
So Fury was able to shuffle in, plant his feet, knowing Wilder was going to go back, and then just extend the punches. And it's almost as if Wilder couldn't understand what was happening. When he was on the inside, classic neck control. Fury just put his arm on his neck and put the weight down, forced Deontay Wilder to carry both of their weight. You know, Vladimir did it and it was, you know, it was considered boring, but in this case, it was done with the aim of just breaking down your opponent. And it, it looked good and it looked scary. And it didn't look like Wilder had much in his locker other than trying to let the right hand go. And that disappointed me. You're paying your trainers, and we'll come on to them later, you're paying your trainers upwards of half a million dollars each. And they couldn't prepare you to throw more than just a one-two. The jab to the body was good. I thought, and I, look, I gave Wilder the first round because I thought the double jab he was working was really good. He wasn't very mobile, which from the beginning worried me. The lack of mobility worried me. And it wasn't the weight. Rest assured, Deontay Wilder could carry another 10 pounds and he'd still be athletic. It wasn't the weight that was a problem. There was something physical that wasn't there in his preparation. Don't know what it is. And I don't think we should use that as an excuse because once you step through the ropes, it's all business. And we assume that you're ready, willing and capable of fighting. And so I'm not prepared to let him get out of jail on that one. And so you're going through this fight and you get to the third round and now he gets knocked down. It was a legitimate knockdown. Was it round the back of the head? Yes. But in Fury's defense, when he threw the punch, Wilder was facing him. When it landed, Wilder turned his head away. And that's the risk you take when you turn your head away and you don't defend properly. But after that, the, the fight was a wrap. It was like almost everything caught up to Wilder, whatever had been happening outside the ring. The fact that Fury was so big and strong, the fact that Fury was so aggressive, the fact that Fury wasn't letting him think, wasn't letting him breathe in that ring. And we use the same expression when we're talking about the first Joshua Ruiz fight. All of those wilder layers started to come off. Much in the way that they did with Ortiz, we forget this in the first Ortiz fight, he was pulling those layers back. It was just that Wilder found the equalizer from somewhere in both fights. But Ortiz was pulling those layers back and was revealing how basic Deontay Wilder actually is. It just happened in this case, Fury had the physical size and dominance to really ram that point home. And he had the resilience to take Wilder's hardest shots. He took some hard shots in that fight. So you have to, like, I'm giving Tyson 95% of the credit here. And then while they're not being physically right, it's 5%. You know, I thought Tyson did everything he had to. He punished him. He bludgeoned him. Those weren't punches I call knockout punches. But if you go back to that second Chisora fight, then you understand what Tyson was doing. Because in the second Chisora fight, he just bludgeoned him. And the punches were so heavy. They weren't explosive, but they were so heavy that they were just breaking Chisora apart. And you saw that with Wilder. Wilder's face was swollen his ear was gone. God knows what else. And by the end of that fight, you, you, I didn't even think Wilder had it in him. His legs weren't stable enough to let the shot go. And it was reminiscent of, it was reminiscent in a way of Hey Bellew, where you had a guy who was unable to stand and all he was doing was looking to the ropes for support. And you know, we can't ignore this. He was literally looking to the ropes to hold him up. 
he refused to engage in the middle of the ring because he couldn't he couldn't cope with what was coming back. So he was just leaning on the ropes, taking some shots and hoping to counter back. But the difference between Hay and Wilder is Hay can read boxing attacks. So Hay doesn't take shots flush. Wilder was taking shots flush. And it wasn't it wasn't pleasant to see. It just wasn't pleasant to see. And then mercifully, by the seventh round, it was all done. So what was it? Nine was it ninety-nine seconds into the second round that people were making a big deal about into the seventh round. But that was fantastic. Look, I am delighted for for Fury. I thought tactically it was spot on. I know people say, ah, that's what the Kronk did. And I'm like, uh, I think Tyson could already do most of that stuff before he met Sugar Hill. But what Fury clearly did was create an environment for excellence. Whatever was happening in that camp, and they kept it really tight-lipped. So I, I got a few little messages that were coming out. But they kept it really tight-lipped. But what they said was, we just worked really, really hard. So a lot of those young guys who were in that camp got a hell of an education in how to be a heavyweight and how to be a heavyweight champion. And wasn't close enough to the Wilder camp to know what was happening, but clearly not enough. And, you know, hopefully they'll have their post-mortem and they'll do their analysis because there were things that just didn't seem right. And, I, and like I said, I can only put that as 5% of the result of the fight. 95% was what Fury did because I believe Fury could do that again and again and again. As Wilder, you know, what do you do now is more the question. So now we're, we're deep into the aftermath of this. And the Wilder camp have a lot of questions to answer. Question number one, who's in charge, right? That's what we really got to ask ourselves. Who the fuck is in charge in Team Wilder? Because you can't have the, the named head trainer, Jay Deers, coming up and saying, I didn't want the towel to be thrown in. That wasn't my decision. You can't have the head trainer, Jay Diaz, then saying, I'm head trainer, but I'm not accountable for how he attacks or how he defends. You can't have your head trainer, Jay Diaz, saying, what, an hour and a half, two hours after the fight? I haven't spoken to Mark Breland about why he threw the towel in. So, are you really a head trainer? Now, here's why this is a big issue. There was a tweet from Derek Cooper, whoever he is, man, he is. Man. And he said something like, Jay Diaz doesn't get the credit he deserves. And after yesterday, Jay Diaz gets absolutely all the credit he deserves. None. Because when you're head trainer, you're accountable for the performance. Do not blame anybody else. You are accountable. How the hell can someone in Mark Breland, and I know Mark, um, I spent time with Mark when I was in New York. How can Mark Breland be free to, to make decisions without signing you signing them off as head trainer? Well, Mark Breland can just throw the towel in and say, look, the fight's over. And you're there confused as to why is the fight over. I don't understand this. So for all those who are like, who the hell is this Jay Diaz guy? So in simple terms, if I remember correctly, Jay Diaz is essentially a guy who was a journalist. I think he covered murders. And not even him. His brother set up a boxing gym. Jay Diaz used to help out. And by the grace of God, Deontay Wilder walks into that gym. And that's how it happens. Now, why is this important? Because it goes back to that Paul Smith thing. You have to have been involved in boxing to understand boxing. 
And you definitely have to have been involved in boxing to be a trainer. I don't believe for one second Shane McGuigan lets that towel get thrown in. I don't believe for one second Ben Davison lets that towel get thrown in by anybody. I don't believe for one second, uh, let me think of another. Brooke Stretfield doesn't let anyone fucking throw the towel in without her say-so. Anyone steeped in boxing, you don't even have to have had 100 amateur bouts. Anyone would be like, listen, I am head trainer. I hold the towel. So, for example, when I do corners, I hold the towel if I'm leading. If I'm not leading, I don't hold the towel because it's that guy that has to throw the towel in. Dominic Ingle holds the towel. No, Dominic, Jamie Moore holds the towel. Rob McCracken holds the towel. The reason they hold the towel is they are accountable for that decision. Because in some cases, it's a life or death decision, as Adam Booth has said many times. So, for Jay Diaz to delegate that to Mark Breland shows you that this guy, he, he's not from that stock. And I don't want to say that to be disrespectful. I'm saying it more just... This is what happens if you don't have the right team around you because you won't know how good your team is until the pressure's on. Breland did the right thing. There's a reason why Breland is a former Olympic gold medalist 1984. There's a reason why Mark Breland has fought at the highest level. He understands the sport. Mark Breland knew, imme not immediately, but he knew in that moment Wilder was finished. There was no point in him taking additional punishment, saving for another day. And he stopped the fight. If Jay Diaz doesn't understand that, if Jay Diaz's view is that I would have let him carry on, he's a danger to the sport because he doesn't understand it. You have to understand that. You have to take those beatings. You have to have been hit around the head. You have to have been buzzed. You have to have had your legs turned bandy to understand that there's only so much of that you want to take before it starts to live with you. And Jay Diaz has let his guy down. He's let his guy down for two reasons. One, that he didn't have the towel himself. You know, that tells me he didn't want accountability. Two, that he hasn't got enough authority in that camp that Mark Breland would come to him and ask him. He just told him that he was going to throw the towel in or he was thinking of throwing the towel in, then just did it. Three, Jay Diaz clearly doesn't understand how to put a, a tactical plan together for Wilder because Wilder came in woefully underprepared woefully ill-equipped for what was about to happen. So there are all of these factors where if you're Deontay Wilder and you don't look at your camp critically now and say, I need a complete root and branch overhaul, I don't think you get it back. I don't think you get the belts back. Contrast that chaos with the unity. Tyson, Sugar Hill, Andy Lee. Just all on the same page. And more importantly... All accepting that Tyson's the leader in that camp. He sets the tone. This is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. And everyone falls into line. But what he also does is he delegates that authority. You guys are the guys seeing what's happening on the outside. And just from guys I know who've been around Fury, what Fury's really good at is coming back and saying, look, this is what I'm seeing in there. This is what I'd want to do. And then someone might have to give him a reason not to do it. But Tyson takes accountability for his own performances. But he's that skilled, he's that experienced, boxing's his thing. Wilder can't do that. Wilder has to have a corner around him that he trusts. And after this weekend, I wouldn't trust Jay Diaz. 
I'd still trust Mark Breland because I don't think Mark Breland did anything wrong. Apart from, well, the tactical aspect of it, which was piss poor. But no, I think in the final analysis, I'd like to see Wilder review his team. Not necessarily get rid of people, but make sure that he leads that team. That's his lesson. He's the leader in that team. He tells people who makes what decision and they go from there. But I suspect what we're going to see now is in the next 30 days, it will start to come out. You know, there were issues in camp. Wilder wasn't this, he wasn't that, which is fine. I imagine the rematch clause will be invoked and that will happen sometime around September if Wilder isn't too badly damaged from this fight. So we're not going to see the Joshua fight. That, that, that is absolutely clear because I think in Fury's mind, he's physically in good enough shape. He still hasn't taken a real hiding yet. Many more miles on the clock, he can fight Joshua whenever. You know, and the longer they keep Joshua in the cold, in the sense, the harder it is for Joshua's team to justify taking most of the money. And also, when Joshua's got three belts to defend, it just keeps the pressure on him. He has to keep fighting. Fury can take some time off if he needs to. So I think there are all these things that are now starting to play together. You know, you've heard Eddie Hearn start spinning already, talking about, you know, we can make the Fury Joshua fight happen. I don't think you can. Do I want to see Wilder Fury 3? I think Deontay needs a, an intervening fight to convince me. But I'd understand why he'd want to take that fight. You know, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's certain money. It's good money. It's, it's not risk-free money, but it means you don't have to go down and fight guys like Yoko and Hergovic. You can still stay at the top table. And as for Fury, it'd be interesting, right? Because... He has to get it done before Dillian White's mandatory in Feb 2021, if that's still if that's still a thing even. So he's probably got opportunities to go out and make some money himself and may, maybe have a British fight against Chisora, which you always suspect would happen because those two are friends. But I'm now looking forward, and I'm glad that you know Tyson's top of the tree. And I, I personally thought Wilder would win, so I, you know, I can take my L like a man. But I... I'm happy Tyson is there because now we'll find out if the British public are prepared to forgive. He should be sports personality of the year just based on that. The comeback to ascend the top of the mountain and to do that by destroying the guy that Joshua has having nightmares about. And let's not forget that. Joshua was having nightmares about fighting Deontay Wilder. That's why it never happened. If I bet any money now that Joshua's seen this performance, he's now there like, I'll fight Wilder. Yeah, we'll do it 50-50. They'll do all they can to make that fight now, but it's too late because that's not the Wilder that we wanted you to fight. So let's just look forward to a couple of weeks of spin, counter-spin, misdirection, excuse. It's all going to come out in the next couple of weeks. And I guess that's what makes Let's start again. And that's what makes boxing the sport we love. But... Look, let me not get too deep into it because, to be honest, we all watched the fight together. We all had fun. You know, we, we, we did all of this. But actually, there's one point I wanted to add on, on why I'd get rid of Jay Diaz as well. If I'm correct, the, the ear started to bleed in either round three or round four. All Jay Diaz would have had to say was, doctor, come over here. Why, why is the liquid coming out of his ear? Is, is this a brain injury? And they could have stopped that fight. And it would have been ruled a no contest. 
and then they do a third fight, get their shit together. That's why you get experienced corners, because an experienced cornerman would have had the doctor over as soon as that ear started playing up. Because you want to get the no contest. But Jay Diaz is a crime journalist. And so he wants to see the story play out. And that's not really the way you do things. But we'll see. Let's just see what happens, right? Because this is a power shift in the heavyweight division, without a doubt. It's a power shift back to the UK. It's a power shift from Joshua being considered number one to Fury, without doubt, being number one. It's a power shift of Wilder's gone down, but we don't know where he's gone down to. Because remember, once Wilder loses that, that, that air of invincibility that he can knock anyone out, it's not that he goes from being 10 out of 10 to being 9 or 8 out of 10. You go from being 10 out of 10 to being like 5 out of 10. So Wilder has his rebuilding job to do, where he's got to rebuild that menace. So you can't come with the same Deontay Wilder from the Ortiz fight, from the Brazil fight. Because now these guys are looking at it going, oh, if I just set about him, he can't go backwards. Can't box on the back foot, can't box going backwards, doesn't like it, always needs that space, let me crowd him out. So you're forced now to actually rebuild your game because everyone's going to be coming at you with that aggressive approach now. Now you've got to learn to box on the back foot. Now you're going to have to learn to box going backwards. You're going to have to learn how to shorten your punches. You're going to have to incorporate more uppercuts. You're going to have to incorporate more chopping hooks. You're going to have to be more creative. And if you don't do that, your career might be finished. That's the scary thing because... We want, just like Ruiz, we want Wilder to be in this mix. Yeah, I want there to be a mix where you've got Fury, Wilder, Joshua, and over time you've got Dubois, you've got Yoka, you've got Hergovic, uh, you've got this Jalilov kid who's about to go to the Olympics. I want, I want there to be like a situation where all of these guys are in the mix and they're all credible. So we need to invest in Wilder as well and make sure Wilder remains credible. But to do that, he has to evolve and he has to learn. Because what we saw yesterday won't be enough now. Now that that invincibility mask has slipped, I feel confident I can train a guy to beat Wilder now. Now that I've seen that, yeah, it's easy now. You know, Fury just had to show us how it was done. Oh, it's easy now. You know, oh, just deny him space, push him backwards, bully him a bit. Okay, we'll do that. And you'll go to pieces. But guys, look, it's Sunday afternoon. I need to do something productive with my day before I lose it. But thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. As always, listen, like, share. Let's have the discussion. You know, let's just keep growing the, the product, keep growing the community because, you know, this is one place you can come to hear that truth. Take care.